0: If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor.
1: First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use.
0: Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
1: And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership.
0: It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us.
1: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. back to L.A. Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with
0: Dr. Scott. Welcome back, everybody.
1: Yes, we are going to just really jump back into something we were talking about last time. Yeah, exactly. We have this. So a, a case came up last week, which, okay, so November 8th, I think this story came out, which by the time this comes out will be a couple of weeks. But right on the cusp of us releasing our Killer Nurses episode, this story comes out and um, everyone was all over it, tagging us in it. (laughs) But there was this Jane Doe case. Um, Oh, my gosh. Why can't I find the state of where this happened? Florida.
0: Well, there you go. (laughs)
1: There you go. It wasn't Alabama this time. I
0: know. (laughs) Yay for that.
1: Um. So there was a a Jane Doe um, case in Florida back in 1999, and this woman had been essentially just dumped in a cornfield, and they had no idea who she was and zero information on suspects for all these years. And the sheriff's department essentially got a phone call from a, quote, a concerned citizen, um little shout out to Swindled there. That's what he goes by, a concerned citizen. But I don't think he's the one that called this in. No, I
0: wouldn't, but, he, um, but he would if he could have. <laughs> of course.
1: Um, and the citizen said, hey, I know this woman. She's a nurse and she's been telling people that she killed a woman back when she lived in Illinois. So um, I guess the murder actually happened in Illinois. Where did I get Florida?
0: Well, it was. I think it was in Racine, Wisconsin, wasn't it? Oh, my God. You're getting it all right. What is Oh, happening? no. Okay. So, no, 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 no. You're not wrong. So the arrest of the 64-year-old nurse, um, Linda, in- Linda LaRoche. Linda La- Linda La so she's was- living
1: in Florida when she's now. No,
0: she was in Wisconsin. She got arrested in Racine, Wisconsin. What
1: the hell? Why can't I read? Because it's the end of a... Because
0: it's the end of a long day.
1: Long day. Um,
0: okay. uh, another, yeah, another killer nurse. Um, another killer nurse that
1: essentially this... 18-year-old girl, back in 1999, developmentally disabled, lived alone with her mother. Her mother passes away, and she wanders into a medical clinic looking for help. And this nurse recognizes her developmental disability and takes her home and essentially treats her as a slave. So the criminal complaint is just horrific that the nurse, LaRoche, her children recalled that the um, the woman had lots of signs of injuries. She'd been forced to sleep in a crawl space underneath the home. Um, she was just verbally, emotionally, physically abused, and, and essentially their mom treated her like an animal. Um, there's also a really interesting twist, and in, I'm sorry, the victim's name is Peggy Lynn Johnson, Um where the husband, there's some interview with preliminary husband, interview with the husband where he's saying that he found her dead, but then the wife said that she died by suicide by downing a bunch of pills and that she was going to go get rid of her body. So I wonder how this is going to play out implementing husband and Oh, just sounds like
0: a horrific. Yeah, it is horrific. And it's also concerning to me that like, you know, there are several articles, you know, there's a couple of short articles and, you know, uh, British newspapers. And then there's the People article that we're pulling some information from. And I always I'm always interested to see what's going to come out in trial, because the idea that your husband, you know. You have a slave in your house. Yeah. And you're you know, you're know, not recognizing that she's being forced to sleep in a crawl space. So you're complicit oh, in some part of this. And if if nothing else but trafficking, I mean, I don't know what the statute of limitations on that is, but that's just
1: yeah, horrific. Yeah, I, I don't know, but it's a very sad story. But um, one different from a lot that we covered with the killer nurses because those were more serial killer type situations. So... Thought it was worth mentioning.
0: I, I I do think that's interesting and and worth mentioning also because there is a case. Gosh, where is that right now? It was just the sentencing just happened of the restaurant owner um, who is going to prison for twenty years, which I think is barely enough of a sentence um, because he had basically had a developmentally disabled African American man. That was his slave for for decades, um, oh I think. It, so um, the individual is um, John Christopher Smith. He was hired at J&J Cafeteria in Conway, South Carolina when he was 12 years old. And he did things like the basic things, wash dishes, bus tables, cook food, and all without issue, except – When Bobby Paul, of course, like the most Southern double name, Bobby Paul Edwards, um, was promoted to a daily manager and he enslaved Smith at the restaurant for five years. And there was this physical violence. There was threat. There was intimidations. And there was – I mean it's reported that Smith coerced – Smith was coerced into working more than a hundred hours per week with no salary no pay nothing
1: and did he live at the restaurant
0: it, it looks like he did like he was kept he in was a shed in the back oh. um, I mean it's just it's just horrible and I mean the the way I mean so for the purposes of this podcast just making an observation on the on these two these two people I mean the psychopathy here is that without diagnosing it the, the most clear thing is that these people people for whatever reason in one case it may be you know complete overt racism in another case i'm not sure what's going on with the nurse but they do not see these individuals as human they view them as subhuman as less than one because of his color the other because of her mental status
1: which is astounding when you consider it's a nurse that yeah. is doing that i mean that was the whole concept really right of our last episode um yeah, it, it's one of those things that makes us say, why do people do that? Right. But, um, but we're not even talking about any of that today for That's episode. That's all we're talking
0: about, right. <laughs> we're no. actually going to have
1: a lot more fun, I, in a way, with this episode. Um, we're going to be talking about a couple of vintage Los Angeles characters. Um And this sort of came about because a few weeks ago, around right before Halloween, Scott and I went and did a tour at the Heritage Square Museum, which is this really amazing place in, it's essentially Los Angeles. It's kind of south of Pasadena off of the old Arroyo Seco. Highway, which is—it
0: like was the first the highway first in the U.S., which is kind of amazing. It's really because it doesn't cool. look like a highway; it looks like a two-lane street. But people go really fast. Oh on.
1: yeah, and it's curvy, and it's kind of terrifying to get onto the freeway. And from do you know those why those it's entrances. curvy?
0: No. You know, I I because I'm such a, a weirdo, I went and was like, why is it so curved? This doesn't fit the top you don't topography need it, of the grand- right. The designer, it was the first time anybody had built a freeway for a major connection between, you know, large city and smaller city. They curved it to slow people down. Oh because it was gosh. back in the time when it was cars like you know when they're model, model T's, T's. <laughs> and they were thinking, well, if there are curves, they won't be able to get it, get up enough speed. And folks, let me tell you, if you come out here, it's so dangerous. I mean, people are going you just so fast.
1: Will crap your pants trying yeah. to get onto this freeway from these little on ramps.
0: But the the Heritage Square that is is it Highland Park?
1: Yeah, it's I would say Highland, Highland Park Park Park-ish. Um, so it's so right, hard.
0: it's right by the freeway. It's by, by right by an arroyo, mm-hmm. which is basically a dry creek bed. Which is right. very, in, you know, during our rainy season out here, it gets really full. But basically, they took, they saved a bunch of historic Victorian and pre-Victorian homes from all over Los Angeles. And when there was money enough to transport them, they put them on a flatbed or on the, you know, on a, a trailer bed, and they moved them here. And they've been in the process of restoring them. Some are fully restored, some right. are partially restored. There's an old time, uh, sort of turn of the century pharmacy mm-hmm. museum that you can go through. And a church. A church. That right the church. The church is beautiful. There's a like a, a vintage train car. It's it's a really cool place. The first time we went was what like ten years ago because it was before Sydney was born. Yeah, it might have been longer.
1: Probably 10 years or so.
0: So that one was a cool visit because when we went, the whole thing was about Victorian death morning, rituals yeah, and morning, morning. Rituals. and every house you went into, there was a different, uh, like one was having a wake and you went into another one where there was a widow mourning, and she was, she wanted to show you the jewelry. She goes, I love my husband so much. So I took all of his hair and I made it into a locket and we're all, everyone's Which like, that's what they, used that's to what they do. did. And you're like, ah, uh, you're wearing a dead person's hair.
1: Yeah. Or covering um, the mirrors with the black cloth. Right.
0: Or, or the alcoves in the corner of the staircases so that you could get the coffins down the stairs. Yep. And, um, But this time, they set up in each one of the houses a different crime that was significant from turn-of-the-century Los Angeles.
1: Yes. So
0: So we got to see actors reenacting.
1: Which is a whole experience in and of itself. Right. It makes your husband a little nervous.
0: Yeah, it's not he his thing. He doesn't like it. It's not his thing. <laughs> and it's actually like, and I, you know, I go into that mode of like, oh, I hope he's okay. And like, I hope he's having a good time. And I was telling you earlier today, if I had gone lo- along alone, yeah. I would have totally. Gone. I would have made it an immersive experience, sure. and I would have asked all the characters, "Well, how do you feel about this prohibition thing?" And
1: because you can interact with the characters yeah. and sort of ask them questions as they're they're acting out um, these historical true crime events around you, and you can kind of look at clues that are around. It's it's fun, but it's so funny.
0: But we were managing kids too. Yeah, we, we, had our... we had
1: a couple kids in the group, um, which they were totally into it. Like yeah. just. I think it was overwhelming for the wide-eyed. eyed. What is it? wasn't gruesome. It was it was um, family friendly.
0: Right. But it was a bunch of adults yelling at each other from different rooms. Right. With like head
1: wounds. Yeah. And-,
0: <laughs> and then we went through one. We went through the 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 house that was actually the house of a doctor in 1928, I believe. Sounds right. And there's a one. There's a. There's uh, a a prohibition woman mm-hmm. out front with a sign saying, you know, have you signed my petition? You know, alcohol is evil. And, you know, she's really into the role. And then there's like this teenage girl yelling at her from the porch, get off my property. <laughs> and so you go inside right. and they're like the young girl, the teenage girl is going, do you have your prescription? Did you get your prescription? Cause the doctor can't give you your medicine without your prescription. You're going What What is going on? And then you realize that during Prohibition, the only way you could get alcohol was to go get a prescription from the doctor for medicinal purposes. So then you go through his office and you're seeing all these antique, scary medical things. And then you walk into sort of the parlor or the drawing room and there's like these three floozies just tossing back alcohol. (laughs) It was really funny.
1: It was funny. It was funny to like see your husband's like what is she wearing that's not from this time oh, period God. and just like that's
0: my life that is that is the life of working for, working, uh, for? No, working for yeah working for being married to a production designer who yep. loves period films because yep. i remember one of our first dates going to a movie and him like going this, this huge sigh this oh, and i lean over to him and i whisper like what, what's wrong he goes that door jam uh that that door mechanism wasn't invented really until about fifteen years later than when this is set. And I'm like, what?
1: You were probably like, oh, it's so cute when you're first dating, and then now you're just like, come yeah. on. It's like us with cop movies when we're like they would never hold their gun like that. Right. Like why why are they racking around into it right now?
0: Yeah. Or Shutter <laughs> Island. Like everybody who's loved loved the movie Shutter Island. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, sure. Yeah. They're going to turn over the entire mental institution to one delusional man and let him burn and you know right. destroy property to try and give him a cure. That ain't gonna happen. <laughs> it's not gonna happen.
1: So can you talk do your story though in that voice, this vintagey Hollywood? <laughs> voice the time. Like a
0: newsreel <laughs> voice. No, I can't I I wouldn't be able to I, there's a couple of quotes that I'll be able to do a little bit, but I'll tell you what I will do is mm-hmm. I will Um, I'm going to try and find some public domain, scratchy Victrola music from that time, and I may um, have it start playing underneath our storytelling.
1: So... We're doing things a little different today. We're not well. There is some psychological stuff wrapped into oh, this, but it's is, not yeah. like we're picking a psych topic and and applying a case to that. So Scott is going to talk about a case from the turn of the century that was featured at this museum that we went to, and then in the later half, I am going to talk about um, a pretty interesting character from the nineteen thirties that was involved in criminal psychiatry back in the day. So um, that's what we're bringing you today. Um, anything else you want to cover before we get into our no, stories? I think
0: that's it. Um, uh, we're getting I, – I know we usually leave this for the last, but I just wanted to say we're getting great suggestions and feedback. You guys are contacting us through the website and through social media. It's, it's great. We're taking – You know, I'll get back to you when I have a moment, like when I have a weekend, when I can, you know, return messages to everybody, but keep the ideas coming. They're Mm -hmm. just awesome. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start with a story. I mean, that is fascinating. Once again, one of these things, I think I know the whole story. And then I do a deep dive and I find out I knew very little of the story. But as with any big city that has a population with a lot of money, there are philanthropists that, you know... Not so much now. I, I think we see so much corporate influence. We see the Staples Center and the the Xerox Bowl and all that crap. <laughs> but, you know, back in the day, these were individuals who were philanthropists, millionaires, and they gave a lot of money for a number of reasons. They gave money because they needed a tax break and because that form of narcissism of I want to have my name on something. Yep. And there was nobody bigger really in the history of Los Angeles at the turn of the century than Griffith J. Griffith, which I think is the oddest name. It's like right. naming your child
1: after their last name.
0: Right. Yeah. And just separating it with an initial, which I think is bizarre. But However,
1: a founding father a
0: founding of founding, Absolutely. A, a huge character and contributed a lot, even though he did some wacko stuff that we're going to talk about. So this is back in the turn of the century. And we have like, I mean, if, if you're not familiar with L.A., we have some enormous, I mean, amazing landmarks. One of which as everybody's heard of this Hollywood sign, which used to be Hollywood Land, and it used to be a piece of crap and falling apart, and they've restored it several times. It's iconic. Um, the one of the, but the famous one. Is the Griffith Park Observatory, and it was one of the first major observatories in the country, and it's beautiful.
1: My favorite LA landmark.
0: It's your favorite LA landmark, which you have inked on your body.
1: I do. Scott (laughs) teased me and asked me if it was the Hoover Dam when I first showed it
0: to him. (laughs) Is that the Hoover Dam on your thigh? What a jerk.
1: Why are we even friends?
0: <laughs> um, because I say stuff like that.
1: So, but yeah, Griffith, um, Griffith
0: Park, Park is in Griffith Observatory, and Griffith Park is a great, gorgeous carve-out of nature right in the middle of our city, sort of like Central Park is in, yeah. in Manhattan.
1: Think about La La Land movie featured yeah. a lot there up at the observatory on the roads the trails lots of hiking trails a lot
0: of hiking trails it's a lot more primitive it's not um, as landscaped as something like Central Park and and I actually I would I would say that probably they should take a section of it and landscape it a little bit better but because um, we live in a desert environment that's kind of scrubby at times um, and so it's not sometimes it can be lush sometimes it's a fire hazard mm-hmm. but tons of outdoor activities which is great but it's great that it was preserved. So, um, sorry, I digress. But it is a big part of our city, and it's a big part of our culture here. There's a the remains of a zoo, but there's also a huge museum there. There's tons. Well, there there's a new zoo now, and there's an right. old zoo. Have you ever been to the zoo ruins of the old? zoo? I haven't.
1: I want to go. It's hiking very cool. There so we should bad. do that. Okay.
0: Maybe we'll record an, an episode because there's a couple of bodies that have been found yeah, in it looks that area. Super creepy. It is creepy. Yeah. Um, anyway, so. The I'm going to take you back to 1850 in South Wales in the UK. Um, That was where J.J. Griffith was born. Um, He was born into a family of miners and farmers, and it was pretty much considered uh, a – lower-income, impoverished family, um, not a lot of opportunity at that time in that area of the UK. And he had the opportunity to come to America by being brought by an uncle and... um He took advantage of a lot of of educational opportunities. Uh, He was in Pennsylvania first and went into the newspaper business. And then from there, as a reporter, went to San Francisco in the 1870s, which was a big deal. San Francisco in the 1870s was basically – the gold rush and
1: like the only major West Coast
0: really yeah I mean L, I existence. mean at that time Los Angeles was just a like a scrub town there really was not anything going on, um, but San Francisco was the heart of the um, the gold boom and a lot, not only gold but a lot of other precious metals were being discovered, and so he. Sort of propped himself up as an expert on the mine trade and ended up leaving journalism and making a lot of money in the mines. Although there's a there's a good bit of controversy about whether he was ever as rich as he said that he was supposedly he developed an extraction process that helped, you know. Help them pull even more minerals out of the the dirt out of the out of the dirt out of the mines. So um, it's possible that that's where his money came from. But so um, in about 1882, he came south to Los Angeles and he settled in a place that's now probably one of the most beautiful neighborhoods in LA. It's called uh, Los Feliz and it's great old buildings that were built in the 20s and 30s. And there's it's right underneath the mountain and it's right by the park and there's a really iconic fountain that like everybody gets right. their wedding pictures made in front of
1: even the apartment buildings are just so yeah neat they're beautiful, and beautiful.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah they're they're like the sort of the Moroccan Spanish style mm-hmm. all with the red tile roofs and you know fourplexes that are three bedrooms they're they're huge it's a
1: hideous street to drive on it's
0: terrible and especially in rush hour yeah, oh it's but the it's worst precious. um It's also like steps from the river, which is all Mm -hmm. being redone now. The L.A. River is becoming a really beautiful place. But so he bought this entire property when there was nothing there. And the idea was that he was going to turn it into a ranch. It was going to be Rancho Los Feliz, which never really made sense because of that 4,000 acres that he bought, most of it was on the hill. Mm -hmm. So unless you're going to be raising goats, you know, that can— Eat the foliage up there. There's not really a lot that that can be done. And interestingly enough, nothing was done. Whether he held on to it and couldn't make it do anything, Um, but what he really liked to do—oh, something—and I don't didn't get a lot of information on this, but apparently the land itself was cursed.
1: Oh, I I haven't heard that. So there's a legend
0: that it was cursed, and I don't know if it goes back to Native American legends or or something else, but it wasn't, you know, maybe that's why nobody had tried to develop it. But at that time, there was also no crowding. I mean, this is like Los Angeles was just little villages basically connected by a few dirt roads. Um, So he... Because of his personality, he, he developed a really big personality. He came became a really well-known figure in L.A., and he was reported to um, ride over his mountainous rancho properties on a horse, dressing very flamboyantly with like a big hat and sort of like the duster coat that, you know, fell, fell to both sides, and, you know, he would— be barking orders to people that were building things. He was like really big into seeing, you know, getting attention. And he was, he's been described as deliberately flashy and he would, um, uh, walk around with a cane and a frock coat and this is all we get some great information from mark uh, mike eberts who's a professor at glendale community college and he wrote a really great book called uh, griffith park a centennial history so he gave us some interesting information but in doing this information what's really great is something that really does apply to forensics and the interest in true crime and what i mean by that is in looking at this research, what I got to do was I got to look at a real, well-researched and written biography. A great book that went in-depth versus what was written in the L.A. Times in 1915, mm-hmm. which was a glowing report of sure. this wonderful guy. You know, it's just this—I'll read some of the quotes a little bit later. but he kind of
1: got this real psychosocial— Yeah, at that time, they're
0: telling like, oh, this is who, you know, he's just this amazing man and philanthropist. And of course, he was probably giving money to the L.A. Times or scared of his wealth or something. And then you get this, the current um la times like at the centennial wrote an article like oh yeah he was a bit of a character and by the way he committed a terrible crime right and then you get the the biography and it's like oh no this guy really ended badly and and destroyed people's lives but yeah he ended up being a a really a big personality um so at first you know he would be described at at the time in the newspaper as he was let's see uh and this is a quote from the L.A. Times. At, at that time, were you going to make a pen portrait of him, you would see a man of somewhat average height in the prime of life, of well-knit and muscular frame. Although a powerfully built man, he has keen dark eyes that rest on you, but with such an open, frank look as to inspire confidence, while the clear, ringing laugh which invariably accompanies the story he is telling proclaims him to be a man who enjoys every moment of his existence." Okay, so that's just like a glowing, glowing portrait, right? Okay. I want to meet this man. You want to meet him, and I want to have him inspire confidence in me. (laughs) However, there are a lot of other people that were put off by him, like put off in a major way. And one acquaintance described him as... I don't know if I can say this without laughing. A midget egomaniac. Another person said he was a roly-poly, pompous little fellow who had an exaggerated strut like a turkey turkey gobbler.
1: Oh my god, those are great!
0: I know We wonderful. all know
1: someone like that too. I'm,
0: I'm telling you, yeah, <laughs> they they had such great. It's like the Scottish insults. If you go on Scottish Twitter and read the insults, they have the best oh, insults. I, like we can't say them. I mean, I can couldn't even say them on on not suitable for work podcasts. Yeah, they're yeah. so bad. But um, he also called himself the colonel, and he had no no military history, no ranking. He just started adopting – adopted calling himself the colonel so or having grandiose. his – Yeah, having – exactly, grandiosity. Yeah. So um, eventually the ranch just completely failed. And what he did was then he donated 3,000 of those 4,000 acres to Los Angeles. That was in 1896. And – I just let's let's give him a moment of of respect to use be used specifically as a park for the plain people of the city. (laughs) It must be made a place of recreation and rest for the masses, a resort for the rank and file for the plain people. I consider it my obligation to make Los Angeles a happier, cleaner and finer city. I wish to pay my debt of duty in this way to the community in which I have prospered. It's like. Okay.
1: Gee, thanks for this hill we can't do anything on.
0: Thanks for this scrubby land you're giving to to me, this little poor person, you know. Um, So, what? Oh, he was quoted. What is the other. Oh then he was quoted in another interview as saying, recognizing the duty which one has acquired some little some little wealth owes to the community in which he prospered and desiring to aid the advancement and happiness of the city that is ha- has been for so long and always will be my home. I am impelled to make an offer, the acceptance of which by yourselves acting for the people, I believe will be a source of enjoyment and pride to my fellows and add charm to our beloved city, realizing that public parks are the most desirable feature of all cities which have them." and that they lend an attractiveness and a beauty that no other adjunct can. I hereby propose to present to the city of Los Angeles as a Christmas gift a public park of about 3,000 acres of land. Okay, so sorry for reading the whole thing. But, I mean, look, it's, and in some ways it's really no different from any kind of speech that a politician or a rich person would give during this act of philanthropy. Yeah. But uh, the, a writer at the time, Horace Bell, who was a, a editorialist and journalist, Wrote very clearly. It's like, no, dude, you don't have any money. You're doing this as a tax scheme. Sure. And it was, and all the numbers basically about this land. You can't do anything with it. Ranch it's, failed. You, you really don't have any money. And also, there were some reputation things going on at the time. So. Um, and what's also interesting is right at that time you know we have tons of portraits uh, of photo portraits of Griffiths and you know you can see him with this like you know very impressive mustache and he's got you know he's got the round gut that actually was cultural at the time if you were rich you were expected to be portly because that represented that you could afford the richest foods right but you don't see any pictures of his wife Tina
1: I have never seen a picture or statue of her
0: there's one photo that's in the archives that I was It'll be fine. She's very like a kind of a cute, plain looking mm-hmm. woman. She's one of the plain while. people. She's one of the plain people. <laughs> um, but certainly no pictures after 1903, and we're going to get mm. right back over there. So his wife, Tina, it was Tina Mesmer. And um, she was the daughter of a very wealthy man named Louis Mesmer who owned a large furniture store. So uh, Mesmer. Uh, had met Griffith at an event and decided to introduce them, and they were descendants of a family called uh, Verdugo, and Verdugo is another part of Los Angeles as well, and it's a very lush part of sort of an of a valley area. That's is that it's not San Fernando. It's what is Verdugo, Verdugo?
1: Hills area.
0: It may not be San Fernando. It may be San Gabriel or San Gabriel Fornar. I and mean, it's one of the valley properties that actually right. is kind of lush and and beautiful. And um, so Tina and her sister Lucy were the heiresses to the Verdugo family fortune, which was a quarter of a million dollars in nineteen nineteen hundred. Which. That would have been an enormous, enormous amount of money yeah, in today's money. It's
1: over by um, between like Glendale and Tunga Canyon. Yeah,
0: yeah. and beautiful.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, very hilly, very green when it's not burning everything. Yeah, it's as part everything. of the San Gabriel's. Yeah. So, um, But here's the thing. Griffith thought that Tina was going to get all the money and didn't know that her sister Lucy was going to get 50%. So Griffith was like, yeah, I'll court and then when they got engaged, they sent out the wedding announcement, and 10 days before the wedding, Griffith found out that she was only heir to half of the fortune, and he wrote her a really horrible letter and broke off the engagement. And her family, being Catholic, would, I mean, at this time, breaking off a marriage proposal, a betrothal, would have been devastating to the bride's family. It's It's shaming. It would actually— You know, mark her as used property, even if she was, Um. you know, not that I'm implying that there was any premarital sex. I don't know if there was or not. But just breaking that wedding vow means that she would be a couple of steps lower in social status.
1: Yeah. Which is just sloppy seconds for someone. Exactly. Almost as bad as a divorce.
0: Right. Happening. So. It's hard for us to imagine now in Western culture that this would be that big of a deal. But at the time, it was a really huge deal. And interestingly enough, rather than take that ding of, you know, a couple of steps down in social status, her father went to Griffiths and begged him to please retract his refusal and to follow through with the wedding. And it was so important. And, of course, Griffiths said, all right, I'll do it. If Tina gets all the money, if Tina gets the entire fortune and had to be transferred to his name. And it wasn't – and this is what Griffith said. It was not to steal the money but to make sure that after marriage there would be no interference with his wife's money on the part of her family. So he's doing it to protect her. He's a good guy. He's doing it to protect her, right? Right. So I basically, catch. at this point, we find out – it's interesting how there's a parallel between him and another bombastic, very powerful politician that's in the world today. Mm-hmm. But he starts making a string of enemies because he he reneges on deals. His money is inconsistent. He has a lot of people that hate him. He has – because of the whole Rancho failure, he destroyed a lot of people's homes and moved people out. And there was an attempt on his life. And there was someone who um, – there was a man who attempted to assassinate him, failed, and in his failing decided he would commit suicide, so he blew his hat off, like in the middle of the street. It's a guy named Frank Burkett, and the reason he did it was because he had leased land from Griffith to open an ostrich farm on the Las Feliz ranch, and it had been a real failure. He'd fallen behind on his rent, and also... He was a little delusional himself. They said that he had mental health problems, which is kind of understandable because why would you start an ostrich farm in a desert? I mean, it just...
1: I don't know. I don't know anything about ostrich farms.
0: I mean, I hear they're like the meat is really good, but I yeah. don't know if that's what it was being... I mean, was it feathers? Feathers were really big in hats at the feathers, time. But it's eggs. Eggs? I don't know. The
1: Swiss family Robinson had them.
0: They raced on them. I Remember? Remember, they ride them.
1: <laughs> Maybe it was for racing.
0: It could have been. It could have been. <laughs> so he uh Frank Burkett had set fire to his own property, and then I guess he he wow. focused on Griffith being sort of the the source of all his problems sure. which probably wasn't too far from the truth but come on so they've been you know this is several years now that Griffith has been married to Tina um, and what becomes a rumor first you know Griffith is per- he presents himself as a teetotaler and he talks about the evil of drink in public and, you know, he exalts women and makes these speeches about how much he loves women and respects them. And what was really going on was he was increasingly becoming a really, really uh, serious alcoholic. No. Yeah, like drinking constantly, drinking at home all the time, becoming more and more abusive to Tina. Um, He threatened her with a gun. They had an apartment at the Hotel Fremont. They had a, a home and several apartments. Because at that time, before air conditioning, if you were rich, you had the ability of like, oh, it's 90 degrees. Let's go to this part of Los Angeles, which is 15 degrees cooler. So they had various places that they would move around. And... And Later, was the
1: Hotel Fremont the one down at the beach?
0: No, that was okay. another. That was okay. the Arcadia. Gotcha. Um, and that was a beautiful. If you look at pictures, it was this stunning, stunning, like, what's the one down in San Diego? Hotel
1: Coronado. The, yeah, it's like the yeah. Hotel Dell.
0: Um, uh, but it was, I guess it just didn't last and they huh. tore it down, but it was beautiful. Um, and that almost came to be a legal charge in itself that tina backed down and they were trying to you know work things out so now we're up to the summer of 1903 summer you know gets really hot in los angeles so now they've moved for the summer to this beautiful grand hotel arcadia in santa monica and he keeps drinking and what they didn't know was that not only was he drinking very heavily, but he had developed, he had been drinking for so long and so heavily in secret that he had developed really serious cirrhosis of the liver. Mm -hmm. So here's where we get 30 minutes into my monologue of how that becomes a mental health issue Okay, is because when you start to have cirrhosis, of the liver, there's, it's a, medical condition of your, the liver is an an absolutely amazing organ. I mean, it it filters everything. It regenerates itself. You can actually survive on, I think, just one third of your liver if it gets damaged, but you still have one third functioning. You know, so people who are struggling with liver cancer, they can, you know, lock a big part of it. And, you know, sometimes they can survive, which is great. However, When you don't take care of your liver... And when it's
1: 1903. And when it's
0: 1903 and nobody drinks water because water is, you know, there's cholera everywhere. So you drink alcohol all the time. Cirrhosis is a form of scarring. So as the liver is trying to heal itself, it continues to scar. Well, if it scars, that means it's not spongy anymore and it's not doing the filtering job. So all of the toxins that it's been filtering out of your system start backing up. And there is a form of dementia that can happen. Um, I mean, not necessarily dementia, but delusions that can occur Mm -hmm. in the presence of too much alcohol with an impaired liver Mm -hmm. when you have... There's another thing that's really horrible. There's a backup of ammonia in your system. So if you're... I remember working on a medical ward at the prison and you would just... Because they were all drinking like you know the wine yeah. they were making right. illegally in prison and the hardcore alcoholics you would just have this you would think somebody was cleaning the floors with ammonia and it wasn't it was the ammonia. Don't
1: they bloat like they bloat kind of really badly and,
0: and they bloat. the purplish lividity on the skin and spider veins but you the smell of ammonia is mm-hmm. everywhere so there's that pleasant little and how description
1: old was he around this time
0: I think yeah. he was only in his 40s. okay Yeah yeah I mean he was they were you know they had had a child named Van um, and things are getting strained and he becomes increasingly paranoid that someone's trying to poison him. So he would you know the staff was getting very frustrated at the hotel because he would send back food all the time to the cook and he was convinced that someone was poisoning his soup. Mm-hmm. So now fast forward. you know, a couple of nights. Um, It's getting to be the end of the season and it's time for them to go back to their, their hotel in Los Angeles, not their hotel, their house in Los Angeles. And uh, Tina is packing and Griffith comes in the room holding a gun and he has a prayer book in one hand and a gun in the other and he said, would you swear on this prayer book the same way that you would swear on a Bible? And she's flipped out because she's like, what's, what's going on? And he, orders her to kneel and he starts interrogating her so he's interrogating with her with questions like did you ever hear or know anything about Brizwalter being poisoned have you been implicated with or do you know have any information of poisoning against me and
1: oh god how terrifying i know
0: so and he's got a gun in her face yeah so his third question is have you always been faithful to your marriage vows she replies and this is while she's on the stand as god is my judge i have and you know that i have and then she said, as I answered my last question, he shot me. I was on my knees and I jumped up and ran for the window. It was closed, but I managed to raise it and get out. I sprang out and fell to the roof below. So basically this woman in below. full Victorian, you know, garb, right. which is not easy to move in, by no. the way, she's been shot. What we find out later is that she was shot directly in the eye. So it, Shot, but at an angle where it didn't cause much brain damage, right. and she was bleeding profusely. Fell to the roof, rolled off, fell so to the fell floor. She fell out
1: of a. She threw herself out of essentially at least a second story window. Yeah, you? second story. Oh my god!
0: And she lived. I mean, it was amazing. um So, according to the biographer McClure, that we pull a lot of information from, the bullet uh, went into her forehead. But the bullet, for some reason, split in two. And one part of the bullet went upward towards the frontal bone of her forehead, so not into the brain itself, but just stating in the bone. And the other part of the bullet sped downward, but going through her eye and into her cheekbone. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, unbelievably, And like a miracle, she lived. And she was found by the couple in the suite below because, of course, they hear a huge thump and a scream and a break. And, um, and a gunshot. And a gunshot, right. And now she gets – Tina has a nickname as the society wife who wouldn't die.
1: Whoa.
0: Yeah. So they take her to the hospital, and she stays for a month. Um, what's amazing is that she lived. I mean, really, at that time – before antibiotics, I mean, that—that's a miracle,
1: right? An infection could have just oh, killed her.
0: Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine? Wow. Can you imagine having any kind of injury to that extent today and not being given antibiotics? I mean, it's just—it's amazing. So, one of the things that is really funny is that one of the re, um, really snarky sections of his book uh, that I thought was. Oh, this is actually going back to the professor at Glendale Community College, is that they couldn't find him. So he went on the run. The police are called. You know, she was able to communicate that she had been shot. And he, this writer, this is awesome. He said it was like OJ, but in really slow motion. I was going to say, because he's a
1: roly-poly turkey. He's a
0: roly-poly turkey gobbler. And they're chase, the police are chasing him all over Los Angeles. And they're basically just going from bar to bar. And the bartenders are going, oh, yeah, he was here for a couple of hours. And then he went. So nice. they're just zigzagging <laughs> all over trying to find. Now, where this comes into another area of forensics is when it all comes to trial is he had, and he had the best attorney at the time, a brilliant and alcoholic attorney named Eric Rogers. He claimed as a defense that his client had been seized by alcoholic insanity and therefore was not responsible for his actions. He was drunk. He was drunk. He was drunk and paranoid. So it is that cross-section of like, you know, he was being a, a terrible person. And it sounds like he was being fueled by some of the the paranoia that was probably informed by his cirrhosis. But he sounds, I mean, we also know the background. The guy was a dick anyway. You know, I mean, he manipulated. Oh, the other thing was about switching the money is that uh, two hours before his wedding to Tina years before, he walked across the street. And because they were like, oh, you're getting married today. So they recognized him as Tina's husband. He transferred all the money from Tina's account into her brother's account and then to himself. I don't know why there was that extra triangulation, hmm. but basically he's like, yeah, I got all the money now.
1: Right. So he has – he's just a dick, like we said. He has these medical issues going on. But he also has had an attempt on his life before. So that's got to be informing the type of delusion he's having.
0: True. Right, exactly. There you would know, be a reason for him to be paranoid. Sure. And, you know, and it was also at the hands of someone else who was mentally impaired. So right. I'm sure it was somewhat frightening. So the the trial itself, the way it's described in the book, sounds kind of like that scene in Dynasty when Joan Collins comes into the courtroom <laughs> I mean, that's how old I am. But that was a big, great, seminal TV moment. But this is a big. So, like, uh, Tina. Yeah, the door flies open. Tina's entire family walks in in black, and Tina's wearing like a black dress, a black veil, and black glasses because she's now disfigured. Like, you know, half of her face is, or a quarter of her face is blown away. And um, her niece was there, her sister, her brother, and she. But apparently, she went to the witness stand, sat down, and stared at the crowd. Did not make eye contact with him and for almost the entire time very casual direct professional succinct and then turned to look at him so that he could see the damage that he had called her and apparently it really messed him up like he tried to he tried to take on this pose of, of relaxation, but it was clear he was under, not in good place so she was uh, she testified for several hours and then she passed out, which People could say it was dramatic, but let me tell you, wearing black in the middle of summer in Los Angeles. Probably a corset. A corset. I mean, anybody would pass stress, out. The incredible stress. Incredible distress. Nobody drinks any water. <laughs>
1: right. Hydrate people.
0: Yeah. So uh, Griffith was sentenced to guess how many years in prison for shooting his wife For in attempted the face. murder.
1: Um, he's a prominent person. I'm going to say. And a white guy. And a white guy. Um,
0: Four years, two years, wow! And he went to San Quentin. No which, way! Yeah, he was at Whoa. San Quentin, which may have been one of the only prisons at the time. And there's, yeah,
1: it's not what San Quentin as it is today. <laughs> yeah,
0: <it's, laughs> probably. Um, <laughs> got a job in the laundry, and apparently was a model inmate, and probably was the first time he was. Um, of course, he was. He was sober, you sure. know, for years. So that one teaspoon size of his liver that was actually still working maybe started working for him again so um he got out 20 months later so he got two years but only served um 20 months right and uh he was described by a journalist at the time as being a humble changed man and that he wanted to um he wanted to engage in prison reform and restoring his important name but apparently um Society was like, mm, yeah, not so much. Mm-hmm. And that was when he really wanted to donate the money on what was now Griffith Park to build Griffith Park Observatory. And the family, the city founders were like, yeah, I don't I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. We don't um, really
1: want your money at
0: this point. Yeah. But he was this is how bombastic he was in such an ego. It's like you tried to kill your wife. And now you're trying to get this this um, position back. And he um, he kind of went against the city and talked and went in the newspapers was telling sort of the plain people and the readers how the city was cheating them and that like, there was no reason why the park wasn't more beautiful and what, look what this uh, observatory would do and you know he and he ended up because he still had some money giving a lot more money and mm-hmm. um, it's it's very interesting so he. Um, did eventually after he died I think they signed it like yeah let's go ahead and build this you know and and they also built the Greek theater the Greek right. theater is a wonderful it's like a mini um Hollywood Bowl you Yeah, know, it's it's Out, in the it's great in the park. outdoor venue fantastic I saw Steely Dan there it was awesome
1: oh don't get me started on my Neil Diamond stories oh
0: right you're Neil Diamond um so he finally did, after he died in 1919, he died of liver disease, which was not surprising at all given his alcoholic history. Um, the city was like, yeah, we got the money. Let's go ahead and do it. And we'll put his name on it. He's dead.
1: Okay.
0: Um, yeah. And then his wife, who has been divorced and lived with family, apparently the sad thing there is she lived until 1948 and basically never left the house.
1: You know, She never
0: left the, her family's home That's so again. Sad. It is. It's tragic. I mean, he basically took all of her money, Yes. you know, and uh, she was taken care of by family. But that's another example of how, you know, women were so marginalized. You, you did not exist except as your husband's property. I mean, not to say that there weren't successful businesswomen at the time, but once again, right. if you were married, the male had all the... Um,
1: well, and she's disfigured and... I'm
0: Yeah. What is oh, he also tried to claim that the accident the, the shooting was accidental. Mm. Yeah, that didn't right. work so well. Oh. Okay. So, Thanks there we go. Thanks for
1: that story, Uncle Sky.
0: Uh, you're welcome. I can't wait to find out what the curse of Griffith Park is. We'll we'll have to get back around to that and yeah. talk about weird stuff.
1: Some paranormal stuff going on. Okay. Cool. I am going to talk about Dr. J. Paul DeRiver.
0: Oh, that's a big one.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So this is going to take place mostly in the 30s and 40s here in Los Angeles. So just to lay a teeny bit of groundwork for you. So prohibition was until about 1933 here in the United States. So think about speakeasies, um, lots of gangster activity. Um, What was it? The Chinatown killings. Yeah. Around 1924 is when True Detective Magazine started. So I think that's kind of interesting to look at this from a sort of noir um, angle as well. So True Detective Magazine, was it's a mystery fiction um, magazine that really had its peak from the 40s to the 60s. But it initiated the true crime absolutely,
0: genre. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So this... Um, Yeah, they were just fictional detective series. But it's so interesting to sort of see how even into modern contemporary times, how we'll find in the collections of serial killers, they'll have true detective magazines. And there's a lot of sexualization of women and violence and things like that going on. Um, But when we get later into the 40s and especially around... I mean, famously 1947 with the Black Dahlia murder, there were a lot of high profile sexual murders of women at that time. And the newspapers and the tabloids loved it. It was very salacious. They loved to name every killer. Yep. You know, something very headline-grabbing.
0: The lopper, like the Seinfeld episode with the the (laughs) lopper, the guy who was lopping heads off. Yes. But no, they all had to have a catchy name because this was really the the beginning of blue journalism of if it bleeds, it leads. And they were going to be making a lot of money off of it because prior to – the advent of this true crime, there really wasn't anything like that. I mean, you had Sherlock's home, Sherlock Holmes fiction.
1: Right, right. But yeah. it
0: wasn't its own thing, you know, and then yes. it wasn't sort of what you, the term, you know, why we use noir music of the mm-hmm. idea of this, this, creating this dark, shadowy atmosphere where everyone's motives are questionable and the cop's motives are questionable. And yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're talking about big period of police corruption during this time as well. Um, So Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, he was born in New Orleans in 1894. He went on to earn a medical degree from Tulane University in 1916. He did his training at uh, Turo Infirmary Psychiatric Clinic and then he was also an assistant to a professor of neurology at the House of Correction in New Orleans, so prison system of some sort at that time. Um, he went on to serve in the Navy in World War One, and he was actually examining pilots. I wasn't able to determine in what way, if it was sort of um, making sure they were fit for duty or afterwards, if they had been injured or what was going on, but something neurological it sounded like um, in using his training there. And then post war, he ended up getting a job at the VA, and he was working as a surgeon performing reconstructive head surgeries Yikes. for uh, people coming back from war. So, oh, right. um, which is
0: actually why we have plastic surgery. I didn't realize that World War One and car accidents when our car frame used to be all metal. Right. Caused tons of facial injuries. That's why we have people
1: Oh, interesting.
0: The advent of plastic surgery. Yeah. The more you know. The
1: more <laughs> <laughs> what did you what was uh, Tina's nickname again? The,
0: like, the society lady that wouldn't die oh my
1: god that reminds me of like real housewives or something yeah exactly <laughs> plastic surgery real housewives okay um, I digress um, so he became a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and also worked for another Bureau of, of, of War Risk Insurance as a medical examiner um, so sort of processing again more vets from World War I primarily in the D.C. New York area um, in 1923, he ends up getting licensed in California. So he was on staff after that at two San Francisco hospitals, um, St. Luke's and St. Francis. And then in 1930, he ends up resigning from the VA altogether and opening up a private practice in downtown L.A. at the Lancashire Hotel, which I guess that was a thing to open a private practice in a hotel. <laughs> but it seemed like there were more Hotels also were more residents like.
0: Right, it, the hotels the then were not what, yeah, what we think of them as now. They were like they could have been weekly. You know, like you know, almost like boarding houses. I yeah,
1: mean, or like running space for your private practice. Right. Um he could have been doing that. So the the Linkersham doesn't exist anymore. Um wasn't very safe after some earthquakes here, but it was down at where is Broadway and seventh right oh, now. Wow. So
0: um Which by the way it was one of the few areas in Los Angeles they still can film without changing too much to look like the 30s and 40s because a lot of those low low buildings they haven't built a lot of skyscrapers there true it's pretty cool
1: it is it is really neat so a little bit in the 30s he actually went back to the east coast to practice but he kept a practice somehow operating in southern california um, in the santa monica area Um, however his wife was still in L.A., and so in 1933, he ends up coming back here to Los Angeles for good because she was really ill. She had a lot of back problems, mm-hmm. underwent back surgeries. Um, oh, my
0: God, a back surgery in, in 1930s? The 30s. I know. I uh, know.
1: Yeah. That comes into play later in this guy's career, too. Um so so he's no longer bicoastal. He's just here in Los Angeles. And in 1934, he starts consulting with the L.A. County Probation Department. So they hire him on as a consultant to basically examine some of the criminal slash psychiatric cases that are coming across their desk. And I don't know which came first, whether um, he was already working for them. But at this around this time, he and his wife end up adopting a Canadian teenage girl who was on probation. So they, they take in this, this girl and adopt her. Um, So maybe he was, they did that first and he sort of got into the probation department that way. Um, But that, that widens, he starts working as a consultant with the courts. Um, Some specific judges start calling him to consult on cases and Eventually, he starts kind of finding a niche in the areas of people who have committed sex crimes. So he says, you know, there's no postgraduate training on this. There's really no research or books out there. I'm kind of making my niche and doing this, this um, applied work out in the field to study these quote unquote sex degenerates that they called them at the time. So he's doing that, working with probation, working with the courts, doing some studying with people that they would let him assess. And then in 1937 is kind of his big break into um, cases that are active and in cult- consulting and sp- specific types of cases so 1937 is when the babes of inglewood murders occurred um and these were three girls who little girls who were murdered um in south los angeles inglewood area and
0: uh isn't that interesting too that they put a name on the victims like a yeah. a salacious name because and, and and i misinterpreted like i think babe it's like oh it's three co-eds teenagers yeah. or young women it's like no you know, it's three babies, babies three yeah. children
1: yeah um but an lapd detective from the valley who had crossed paths with dr deriver ended up saying hey you guys should have him come out and look at the scene and see what he can tell you because he's been working with the courts and that sort of thing. So basically, he they let him come out to the crime scene, and he writes a criminal profile. So after viewing the bodies of these three girls, he says, quote, Look for one man, probably in his 20s, a pedophile who might have been arrested before for annoying children. He is a sadist with a super abundance of curiosity. He is very meticulous and probably now remorseful, as most sadists are. Very apt to be masochistic after expressing sadism. The slayer may have a religious streak and even become prayerful. Moreover, he has a spectacular type and done this thing and has done this thing not on sudden impulse, but as a deliberately planned affair. I am of the opinion that he had obtained the confidence of these girls. I believe they knew the man and trusted him. So very detailed. like what year? Like, 1937.
0: And he's doing basically a profile.
1: I mean, this sounds like profiles that are done today (laughs) or, you know, Mindhunter type things to think of. But but when in the 70s, when these were first being done, I mean, they read very much like this.
0: Oh, absolutely. And he's making – I mean, he's making the kind of assumptions that profilers were making, like the the Mindhunter profiles were making, but they were – building they were learning how to do this by building it on these different domains of knowledge of psychology and and murderers and criminal right. law this guy is just pulling it it's interesting um it
1: is interesting because there's there's not he's sort of self-teaching and educating himself in the area of of sex crimes but he pulls a lot of this out of wherever yeah where um, in. And, <laughs> and um And so this is what he gives them. Well, this doesn't actually lead to an arrest. The perpetrator actually kind of ends up telling on himself. He basically walks into a police station saying, did you guys call me for an interview? And they're like, no, but since you're here, (laughs) why don't we talk to you? (laughs) It was very odd. Um, But a lot of it was really close. So he um, did know the girls from... It was either a camp or school or something where he have, was like a maintenance worker. Um, he admitted after he confessed that he prayed over the bodies afterwards. I mean, there are some things that were kind of hit home there. Um, so this completely impresses LAPD. Not that it led to the arrest, but they were like, whoa, this guy's spot on. Maybe he can be useful to us in this emerging area of looking at sex crimes. Okay. What's the confusion on your face?
0: Well, yeah, I've got this my confused look. Um, all of it, really, I, I can I can go with, um, but I'm stopped by the religious interpretation. He may even pray over the body. Like, right. what, where is he getting that from? The
1: Slayer may have a religious streak and even become prayerful.
0: But the, and I'm, I'm and I'm, I'm questioning myself because maybe it's my lack of information about. At that time, how much religion played a part in everyone's life. True. So that might have been just sort of the culture at the time that I don't have enough information on. So it seems a little alien. Mm
1: -hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, So later that year, he ends up as part of his continued studies, he volunteers his services to LAPD, and they do not pay him, but essentially says, yeah, we would like to have you consult with us. So he self-appoints himself to lead the Sex Offense Bureau, in which he is the only person in this bureau, um, but they let him examine every person that's arrested for a sex crime, and meaning This is arrest. This is not even conviction. So he gets to sit down and do a full psychosocial and sexual history interview with them. He um, tests them for whether or not they're psychologically and medically sane. So here we're talking about competency to stand trial issues. Um, He was able to do intelligence testing. Then he would type them by their sexual perversions um, and keep... database. So he would have his evaluation, his information, his assessment, a photo of each person. And it really was the first sex offender database. And they thought, okay, for future crimes, we now have this person interviewing everyone that's coming across our radar
0: movie about him.
1: Well, and think about what all were sex crimes back then? Of course, you have rapes and violent assaults, but we're talking sodomy and oral sex and absolutely homosexuality. So you have him just ripping into the these lives of all of these people right. um, that aren't even— the worst offenders. No, but they're being arrested. I
0: mean, at that time, all of those things were, you know, chargeable offenses, which is just mind boggling. Well, no, it's not. still happening in Texas, apparently. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he is, I mean, you can imagine, there's probably very little oversight. He's sort of off on this island on his own doing this really in-depth work, not supervised by any other you know licensed psychiatrist or whomever. He's just kind of doing his own thing. And
0: because he's the he's the expert, the only expert in that particular area who's going to challenge him, right?
1: Right. Right. It's a really interesting dynamic. Um, so a couple of years later, the City Council of Los Angeles actually approves him to be a paid employee without having to undergo any civil service exam process, which is I mean, today and back then, still unheard of for a city job, um, not having to go through a process. Um, And so what he's doing at this time, he's essentially giving his opinions at crime scenes. He's assisting in the interrogation of suspects um, and testifying for the prosecution at suspects trials. So he's like a one man show doing like everything in forensic psychology that you can think of. Um. So in in 1939, LAPD asks for his help with this Hollywood Prowler case where someone was attacking dancers, um, like beating them to death. One one woman was attacked and beat to death. Another woman was attacked but survived. But essentially, um, somebody was just kind of running around on the streets of Hollywood attacking these women. And so DeRiver tells the police department you know these all happened on moonlit nights you want to look for somebody who is a nocturnal prowler um, you might even catch him he might even have a history of doing a lot of um, burglaries and b and and things like that but he's your guy b being breaking and entering thank you um and sure enough, they catch a prowler breaking into a residence and he's the he's the suspect that ends up getting convicted and it's it was a uh full moon that night. So there's kind of this weird, like, witchy stuff happening. Well, it's <laughs> that almost- makes him seem really you know
0: like yeah magical. like he's yeah like it's a almost you know sort of clairvoyant yeah. abilities in a way is what he's what it seems but i'm sure there's a twist which to the which is story. still the
1: spin that they put on it in media now right if we're talking about criminal profiling and
0: uh, i mean uh, yeah I mean, you're, getting- you're no you're absolutely right because in in truth like and and it's something now, as someone who's been trained in science, I understand, which it, it used to feel very woo-woo, right. some of the things that we do and what people do in therapy. You know, your clients are like, how did you know that? I'm like, well, because it fits <laughs> It fits yeah. a rubric. You know, yeah. we don't use the term rubric, but, you know, a moonlit night kind of makes sense anyway because – People are going to be more likely to go out and walk in the moonlight on a summer Los Angeles evening right. where it's cool, but you're not going to go out when it's cloudy when you can't see because there's no street lights, You could get right. killed. Right? And
1: you're going to break into people's homes because maybe you don't have a flashlight, but you're going to lo- use the moonlight to kind of guide you a little bit. Right.
0: But you're <laughs> going to sound like a genius because it's something that's so specific that happens to be true. Now, and I don't mean to diss his his talent, but it's just one of those things where this is not magic. Yep. It is an art, though. Yes. You know, I, I believe, that, I believe it. that profiling and some of the things that you and I see, like the detectives I work with, I've learned so much from them, just their observations. I mean, they... they Get impressed by the observations we have mm-hmm. about human behavior, mm-hmm. but then they pick up on behaviors that I never knew to look for. Sure. It, that's interesting to me. Sure.
1: Um, so DeWitt Cook is the suspect in this Hollywood Prowler case. He, um, he ends up getting convicted and – getting put to death for it. turns out his defense attorney was a really close friend of deriver's, which I don't like that at all. (laughs) If this, you know, yeah, has any questionable, um, investigation tactics to it or, um, coerced confessions or anything like that. But anyway, so that's a pretty, um, high profile case that he ends up working on that leads directly to an arrest and a conviction. Um, so here's another twist to sort of the work that he was doing when arrestees would be ordered to see him for this evaluation. And then some judges would order that same arrestee to see him for treatment and they would have to pay out of pocket to Oh, him. wow. And a lot of times it was for treatment for homosexuality. So his, what he would tell Judges is because it came up a couple times like, is this a, um, Jeez, why can't I think of it?
0: Um like conversion? Is that what No, you're
1: not or? a conversion, but um the dual relationship with doing the assessment and then also doing the treatment. Well of
0: course it is. But that did was that even a concern at the time? And we we have so many rules about how we do it. I don't know if that even existed then.
1: Some people were questioning it. Oh,
0: they were. Okay. Um, good. Especially
1: when they had to pay out of pocket to him. Oh, but it was being But ordered. it was
0: the perps. It was the or the the victim. Um, I mean not, they're not considered victims but
1: right yeah at times because they wouldn't be able to pay sometimes of course um but he said quote they either take the shock treatment or they sit down there for an hour at a time and they're re-educated that's the way i practice medicine so i know total sign of the times and we're judging this person for (laughs) the time in which he lived but it's just it's still visceral to think about um So in the 40s, 40s, mid-40s, 1944-ish, he begins consulting in the film industry, of course, as one does. Um, He consulted on a a movie called The Woman in the Window, which is a classic L.A. noir film involving a psychiatrist and, um, you know, some murder crimes that are happening
0: it was basically the inspiration for the color of night wasn't it
1: oh jesus christ <laughs> we never One did that watch names. party
0: we should have done the watch party Damn it.
1: still can still can okay. um, but he also becomes really good friends with uh, reporter aggie underwood who is like famous la noir she worked tirelessly on the Black Dahlia case. She was only like one of the um, reporters that ever got a byline when talking about the Black Dahlia case because it was so high profile. Uh, But she worked for the Herald and she would have him examine cases for her when she would get information because we know like around this time, reporters were sometimes getting information. They were on scene before the cops a lot of times and they were getting info from um, informants. And so she would have him examine cases for her even cases he was working on with the police so here's more conflict of interest that was what i was trying to say before dual relationship but essentially it's conflict of interest um so uh, you know he's got his hand in everything um i'm I'm feeling a lot of narcissism of like, yes, let me just keep pumping up my ego with the law enforcement industry and the entertainment industry and reporting. I mean, what else was there in Los Angeles besides those were the three biggies? And here he is. Um, they're, they're all coming to him to get his expert input. So, um so uh, another notable case that he worked on with the with the LAPD was in interviewing the killer Otto Stephen Wilson. And so he's the one that you probably remember that w- I think within the same day he murdered two women in two separate downtown L.A. hotels. The yes. Barclay, it was one of them, um, which is still there, and another nearby hotel. Um, but... Basically, he was found within hours of the murders in a bar chatting up a third woman still with blood on him when the police found him. And basically, a beat cop took his description around and people said, yeah, I think that guy's over in this bar right now. And um, so they um, they intercepted what could have been a third murder for that day. But Dr. DeRiver helped interview him. um, And DeRiver has a book that he later um labels this labels Wilson as the a sadistic homicide lust murderer. So we're starting to see categories of um different types of sexual criminals and murderers as he's developing these typologies. And I'm so upset at myself. I didn't bring my book. I have a copy of his book, which is oh, cool. pretty rare um from what I understand. Um, what's the title of it? It is want to get it right here because he has two um it's the sexual criminal a psychoanalytical study um it's more of a fun thing to have because it's pretty much been this guy's reputation has been debunked. Right. <laughs> Not to give you the, you know, right. spoiler here. Um, but it's it's really interesting. We'll talk about it
0: in It's a, like my a phrenology bit. head.
1: Totally, right? totally, totally. Um, but it's cool. I'll bring it over so you can see it. I have it at my office. Um, so 1947 Black Dahlia murder. Um, he wrote a series of articles for the Herald after the murder basically profiling the killer. Um, a couple of the early parts of the profile, he said during the killing episode, he, meaning the killer, had an opportunity to pump up affect from two sources, from his own sense of power and in overcoming the resistance of another. He was the master and the victim was the slave. He also said it must also be remembered that sadists of this type have a superabundance of curiosity and are liable to spend much time with their victims after the spark of life has flickered and died it's poetic right
0: it's, yeah a purple prose really
1: <laughs> yeah yeah he's kind of creating his own uh,
0: true crime content I, yeah i mean i got i have to give him credit for
1: carving uh, out a niche for himself
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's that's a, admirable and some of it is not so far off in some ways um sure. given what was known at the time
1: yeah 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 so he he's writing these um articles for the herald he is under intense pressure to keep up this database and help solve cases they're like okay we give you this leeway to have this super cool database help us you know solve the black Dahlia murder um and he helps interview dozens of suspects um This ends up leading to this whole debacle where he gets contacted two years after the Black Dahlia murder. He gets contacted by this guy from Florida. And essentially, the guy writes him and says, hey, I'm really, you know, I'm kind of self-studied in the area of, of sex crimes, and I find the Black Dahlia case really interesting. I would love to give you my thoughts on the killer. So, automatically, Deriver is like, "This guy's super suspicious. Why is he reaching out to me?" Um,
0: Which is exactly what you and I would do.
1: <laughs> I know, I know, totally. Well, two years later, like you know, yeah. of, of course, around the anniversary, they talk about it, and this guy from Florida, um, Leslie Dillon, reaches out to him. So he concocts this plan with some detectives of, "Let's lure him out here to California." Um, to, quote-unquote, hear his theories, but I really think this is our guy. So he, they end up getting him a plane ticket, flying him to Vegas, and put him up in a hotel. And they go and have dinner with him. And kind of chat casually with him in his hotel room. And then they tell him they're going to bring him to Los Angeles. So within like a three or four day period, they basically have him holed up in different hotels from Vegas to L.A. To where this turns into interrogations where they're handcuffing him to the radiator. They don't want him to leave, but they also don't really want anyone to know that he's sort of in custody really like shady stuff going on here and also
0: a little bit familiar for something that happened in Los Angeles not too long ago
1: oh yeah yeah okay (laughs) light bulb um so much so this is so bad that he the um the suspect Mr. Dillon drops a note out of a hotel window saying like please contact this attorney to (laughs) represent me because I'm basically taken hostage in this hotel um so and i want to say the attorney that he asked for james uh geisler i think he might have been the same one that represented george hodell and in his incest case.
0: oh whoa
1: i have to double check on that but that name sounds super familiar i think that's what it's from but he was like the johnny cochran of right. um you know, the time, um, which is something I'm taking from Steve Hodel. He always makes that analogy. Um, But so one of the times that they had dinner, I think probably when they were still in Vegas, Deriver said that Dylan refused to eat his steak because it was too rare. And he was like, you know what, that's because he has remorse and the meat reminded him of the flesh of his body, of the Black Dahlia's body. Okay, well
0: now you've just veered off into crazy town. These
1: are unconscious triggers of his that he won't eat his rare steak. Um, Also, during one of the interrogations in the hotel room, Deriver made him strip down and he noticed his very small penis and said that that was probably motive also for um, his sexually motivated crimes. Uh, your face is just like
0: <laughs> i just and it has nothing like to do like you smelled something really like, gross yeah, right but now but i'm not getting, I'm not getting <laughs> triggered no it's just um, it's just the idea that you know it's one of those things where you think about this poor guy just thought like hey i've got some ideas and they're the thing i mean i can understand him being immersed in his own narcissism where he thinks this is a possibility but the at that time given travel this person's coming from another state and you think he's already been to california and killed right and
1: you have to buy his plane ticket to come out here
0: and- yeah there's just so many mental leaps that have to be made To make it work, and what I what I'm seeing in the story you're giving me is I'm making the assumption that you know our main character now is escalating. He has now escalated into believing his own bullshit,
1: sure, and
0: is just sort of tramping through people's lives at this point. You know, charging people for ridiculous treatments. I mean, Mm -hmm. even at Mm -hmm. the time that was still considered a ridiculous treatment, even though there was a very different view of um, sexuality spectrum, but still.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's also what we um, have come to be very aware of with a lot of the true t- true crime documentaries and, um, you know, unlawful convictions and things like that is when you find a person and you try to make all of the evidence fit that person rather than letting the facts leading you to a particular person. So, that I mean, that's what we're kind of seeing here Um there's at one point, it, the suspect, Dylan, starts talking about um, a friend of his from San Francisco who he's like, you know, what, I heard that he actually knew the Black Dahlia from run-ins at different bars and things like that up north. Um, and... So Deriver says, "Well, okay, we want to investigate that guy too. Um, why don't you draw a sketch of him?" And so Dylan like draws a sketch of his buddy, and Deriver ends up saying, "This is just an alter ego that he's created because now he's kind of starting to imply that his friend knew her and/or killed her." Um, I just <laughs> so, I, know, I know I know I'm
0: also thinking of it like if I was in that guy position that because you know I being in. A, a, still an anxious person. Like I'm imagining myself in that poor guy's position and being told to draw something. And i was the worst, I'm the, worst like, stick a, figure, so like horrible of an artist. I would be drawing like, you know, just a Charlie Anything? Brown head. <laughs> this is his alter ego, Charlie Brown.
1: <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Um, so the police actually, so that he ends up getting officially arrested Um, But after three days, they end up letting him go because they really they got nothing. Um, Some detectives drive to San Francisco, actually um, solidify an alibi for him. And they end up finding his friend that really exists. (laughs)
0: Looks like Charlie Brown. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, And he has a solid alibi as well. They were both up in the Bay Area at the time of the killing. Um,
0: God, this should should be on our bad psychologist
1: Oh my gosh. Episode. I mean, this is a perfect
0: example of somebody.
1: This guy deserves to be with the Stockholm Syndrome psychiatrist
0: Dr. Asshole.
1: Dr. Asshole (laughs) and um, our investigator from Italy.
0: Oh, God. We're going to throw all these guys together. This is like our Hall of Shame. (laughs) Yeah. We should probably do a gallery on one of our, like on the Facebook page. Let's do a gallery of those.
1: That's a good idea. So they let him go, and of course – so he was being held at the um, the jail – God, we just referenced this um, pretty recently – but at what is now the LAPD Museum over in Highland Park. That was – that was a police station and a jail, and they still do film. They film there a lot of. Um, they did the most recent season of Twin Peaks. They filmed in there, but the old jails are still there. Um, but Deriver goes there before they're about to release him, and is like, you know, kind of uh, uh, sweet talking him and to be like, oh, well, you know, it it, it was our bad, but. You know, We're just you understand, We're just trying you know, to this killer. it's going to be okay, because all of the reporters are waiting outside for his release. So, basically, they walk out together, and in front of the reporters, Deriver denies that he was ever really a suspect. I mean, they're standing on the steps of the jail, and he's being released, and Says, you know, he was really helpful in pointing us towards another suspect, um, and we found that man, but that didn't pan out either, and just really kind of trying to candy-coat it. And Dylan, like, looks at him and is like, what are you talking about? And then just tells the reporters, basically, Good. what happened. Um, God, I wonder
0: if there's a recording of that. I mean, I'm sure it's oh, gone by now. but that would but be that... so neat.
1: Yeah, I've, I have a still picture of it okay. that I got off of um a fantastic website that I'm going to talk about at the end of this because we got to give this journalist um, his due and just the background he dug in on Dr. DeRiver. Um, let's see. So I don't want to go too much into any more of the cases. He also worked on another case where a younger girl he basically coerced a confession out of her uh, that she killed her entire family or helped her mom kill her entire family. That totally – he was actually um, ordered by a court to never be able to work with juveniles again after that.
0: Well, that was going to be my comment because given the the previous example – of the guy from Florida, it seems to me like I, I would not I would not be surprised at all if that was, if not the first, one one of the seminal turning points for law enforcement. Somebody's given another cop a side eye going, this guy's crazy. He's sending like, us
1: on a wild goose chase. Yeah, this is over this
0: is bullshit again.
1: Eating up resources. If anything resonates with people, it's money if yeah. you're eating up resources. Um, But eventually, a reporter named Sarah Boynoff from the Los Angeles Daily News, she starts at this point to investigate him and look into his background. And most of the hospitals that he claimed to work for back east, never heard of him.
0: So um, not the
1: VAs. The VAs, yes. um, But he talked about being on staff and on boards of a bunch of different other places in Ann Arbor. Typical
0: narcissistic, antisocial pattern. Yep. That's absolutely, that is so common. It's harder to get away with now, but people still do it.
1: Of course, of course. Um, Deriver wasn't even his real name. So in 1923, he changed his name in a San Francisco superior court from Joseph Israel to Joseph Paul Deriver. His death certificate has the incorrect names of his parents to also, so whoever filled out his death certificate... Probably as children, put the names that they knew of, which were told to by him of Deriver. But
0: well, it's interesting. So he moved. He changed his name. I'm gonna. I'm gonna play. You know, uh, Doctor Assumption. Right now, mm-hmm. he changes his name to Deriver or Deriver, which sounds. French, it is, or mid-European, okay. But he changes it from a clearly uh, uh, Jewish name,
1: right? So So that's one of the theories. Exactly. There
0: was a lot of anti, and there still is a lot of anti-Semitism in many aspects of our culture now. But back then, it was really bad.
1: And which would have been easy to, you know, if you're born in New Orleans, the French influence, right? But how interesting, you know, talking about it being French that he chooses the name deriver, one who derives or one who investigates.
0: Love it. Very literal. That's that's very comic book. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. But that's what it it means, you know, when you're talking about French origins. Um, So the city council of Los Angeles actually ends up approving an investigation into his background and the dual relationships. Um, And he goes through the ringer, but essentially... Some high-profile, high-ranking LAPD officials kind of go to bat for him, and he comes away unscathed. It's not like he loses his license over that or anything. Um, And then in 1949, he ends up testifying in a grand jury proceeding essentially against the LAPD and how they were conducting some of their investigations, notably the Black Dahlia case. Um, And then he is now seen as a rat by law enforcement for testifying against them in the grand jury. So um, it's around this time that he ends up coming out with his book, The Sexual Criminal. Um, I read in a couple places that it was illegal back in at some point to actually send it through the mail because it was viewed as so pornographic. Wow. So he has... (laughs) He makes a really um, lame attempt to de-identify a lot of the information in there because he's basically taking – all of that database and just turned it into a book. So there's these really thin, like black bars over the eyes of right. the people, which is what um, they used to
0: do in medical journals as well as when they're showing, you know, vi- you know, people that were
1: deceased and s- well,
0: or you know, scars of syphilis or uh-huh. scars of smallpox, yeah. and they do one little tiny band across the eyes, right? And it's like it's this right. person is clearly identifiable. Yeah,
1: and especially with the information that was side by side with this picture, people were able to put two and two together just from news reports. Yeah. Um, But the LAPD was furious that essentially he used these crime scene photos in his book um, without their um, permission. And it was just really seen as in poor taste and very salacious just to sell copies of this
0: pornographic. Did it work? Did did he sell a lot? Was it successful?
1: I don't know. know. But I think it's kind of cool to have a copy of it. Um. So then in 1950 he where what really ends up getting him in trouble um is he gets arrested for writing illegal prescriptions. Um and a lot of this is related to unfortunately his wife's severe back injuries. Oh okay. So he he was doing it for his wife but also for other people. Um and he ends up getting put on unpaid leave at the police department, which he wasn't even, he was still working for them at that time. Um, he, His family is starting to get harassed. His um, family claims that... Um, it's law enforcement that's sort of prowling around his home. He ends up arming himself with a gun and becoming a little bit paranoid that they're out to get him now that they he testified against them. Um,
0: Legit he, concern. Yeah, yeah,
1: sure. Um, and he ends up being found guilty on the charges related to the illegal prescription writing and is eventually fired from the police department in August of 1950. Um, And then in 51, his license was revoked due to his conviction. However, he gets a stay, and they say, if you follow some rules and get up your, give up your narcotics license, we'll allow you to keep your medical license. Um, so he ends up returning to work at the VA, who hires him back, um, for, and that's from where he retires. Um he wrote a second book called Crime and the Sexual Psychopath, which I really couldn't find a ton of information about, um, but he passed away at the age of 82 at Good Samaritan Hospital in Anaheim in 1977. Wow. Um, so very interesting um, just history-wise, I think looking at criminal psychiatry or whatever he wanted to call it. Um early, just with my interest and just kind of early work with sex offenders I think is really interesting Um, but I'm I'm sure they learned their lesson but LAPD came a long way. They ended up hiring the first police psychologist in 1968, and uh, Dr. Martin Reiser, he's known as the grandfather of police psychology. And um, as of this day, they have the longest running, 51 years, and biggest police psychology services division in the entire nation. So they're kind of the gold standard for um, police agencies and how they run their psychological practices. Um, So I want to um, just thank... John Brian King for his website where he talks about the sexual criminal book and goes into um, Paul DeRiver's background and history in a way that I wasn't able to find anywhere else. Um, like you said, somebody needs to make a movie about this.
0: That's fascinating, yeah.
1: Um, and then Joan Renner, she's a historian. She runs a website called Deranged LA Crimes, which is a really cool website.
0: Oh, we gotta we gotta plumb that for some more.
1: Yeah, she's, she's really great. She has worked with um, both LAPD and the Sheriff's Department with their museums and historical projects, um, but also just kind of into some other really cool things like vintage makeup and <laughs> uh, lots of lots of LA-specific stuff. Um, and then, of course, big thanks to our friend Steve Hodel, who has a blog um, article that talks a little bit about the whole debacle with DeRiver and the Black Dahlia
0: case. And speaking about um, Hodel, for those of you that are out there, our, our fans, please consider listening to our wonderful friend Rebecca Sebastian uh, on Dialogue. She interviews people in the most wonderful way. I just think she's an amazing interviewer. And I was just devouring her interview with Steve Hodell.
1: It's great. I love it. It's
0: really great. I mean, it's unlike
1: heard, any of her interviews, is, it,
0: right? And it's different from every other great. interview he's given. And I've listened to a lot of his interviews, and yeah. I think it's a really great it's a really great name. I mean
1: there's more than once that he's like whoa no one's ever asked me that.
0: Yeah, Which that's, is what I mean. fantastic. that's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's what she does. That's why I you know have huge regard for her talent and what she brings to the to the genre. Agreed. So since you were giving thanks, I want to do a couple of shout-outs to to, um, the L.A. Times, both from the turn of the century and recently. um, Allison Bell, uh, for her article, uh, Colonel Griffith, Griffith, one of L.A.'s more colorful figures from June 2011. Flamboyant? The Colonel? Um, Yes. um, We want to... Let's see. What is the... Jeff Griffith, J. Griffith, J. Griffith, which is a book that is out of print. You can't even get it. I was able to find some scans of it online, but it's another one that is uh, out of print. It was wonderful. And then Hadley Mears from uh, KCET had a really—that was where the comprehensive information that gave us all the salacious details. Oh, they um, have such
1: great stuff. That's who I used. They when really I did do. Our Frank Lloyd Wright. Episode, yeah, it was a documentary they did,
0: and we will be reaching out to them so that they will hopefully give us a listen and give us their approval.
1: And thank you to the Heritage Square Museum for kind of giving us this idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if we if we do it next year, we should probably try and do a meetup for the Halloween that event at Her- Heritage Square. They do something slightly different every year, and mm-hmm. it'd be fun.
1: And they do. Um, christmas events too if you guys are local check them out there i i went there to a christmas fair when i was a kid with my mom and my grandmother i mean they've been around a long time Yeah. so okay well thank you guys so much um we will see you next time on la not so confidential bye folks bye-bye